Thank you for joining us today on the NCMI podcast. How do elders function together along with a lead elder? And how do elders' wives function in light of the broader question of women in ministry? At a church planters and lead elders training week, Grant Crawford, who along with Sue, his wife, lead One Life Church in South Africa, unpacked his thoughts on this subject. If you enjoy this, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and also visit ncmi.net for more resources. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you. And uh, I love to introduce myself these days. I'm from Cape Town. I used to be from a little village up the road from Stanley Phipps, but now I'm in Cape Town. And my subject this morning is the role of elders, deacons, and lead elders. So I'm going to quickly just hasten through deacons because a very topical issue today when you're dealing with elders is elders' wives. So particularly we're going to look at elders, women, and uh, lead elders in the ministry. And uh, when I do my next session, I'll weave a bit of bringing through deacons, etc., etc. So I think first thing we've got to understand is that leadership is God's idea. Uh, it's, it's not a construct of man. God delegates authority into homes and to countries and to churches. And uh, that's the way he works. And he is supreme over all. Now, when it comes to church governance, we have a habit as churchmen of really complicating that. So we have deacons and archdeacons and bishops and archbishops and pastors and overseers and shepherds and goodness knows what. And what we do in church circles around the world is we arrange those in degrees of hierarchy, which really complicates and messes things up. When Paul was writing to the Philippians, he said this, he said, Paul and Timothy, we're writing this letter to you. And he addresses the elders, the deacons, and the saints. And really, our understanding of church governance is that elders govern together with the deacon team, but the saints are the ones who are the priests who are doing the acts of service. And so it's a a very uh, simple, uh, uncomplicated, just like in a family, it's mom, dad, and the kids. And so we're going to talk about elders to start with. And uh, there are three Greek words that describe the office of the person that leads a church. Episkopos, presbyteros, poimain. Episkopos, literally translated in English, means bishop. And that role is overseer. And so in these Greek words, you have something of an idea of what that role implies. So if you're a bishop and you're overseeing, what are you doing? You're looking into the future. There's something about vision, something about direction, something about having a a general overview over the church, seeing the big picture that's required for a bishop, for an episkopos. Now these words you will find in the New Testament, both in their verb and uh, noun form, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the other word is poimain which literally translated means shepherd or pastor and implies the role of feeding, loving, leading, 
caring for the flock. So uh, a, a bishop is looking at the vision and the future and the big picture. A shepherd is running his hands through the wool of the sheep. And then there's obviously presbyteros, which we translate as elder, uh, which implies governance. Governance in terms of uh, discipline and governing uh, in all its forms of um, authority that that carries with it. And, and so what churches have done over church history is they've made these different people. They've put a bishop there and they put the pastor over there. I was involved in a church the other day who, uh, this poor bloke, he, he had for years been living under a congregational model which implies that the pastor is under the presbyteros, so the poimain is under the presbyteros, which means the hired shepherd takes his orders from marketplace governors who tell him what to do. And this poor bug was absolutely exhausted sitting in my lounge saying, I'm dancing to the tune of these marketplace governors. Uh, how does this work for me? Well, let me take you to a couple of scriptures that imply, or not imply, make it clear that these are descriptions of the same dude. So in other words, if you're an elder in your local church, we use the word elder in our tribe because it's the least pretentious of all of them in our language. I could call Stan, Stan the bishop, because biblically he is. I could call him the shepherd, but that's a little bit soft. So, so we use the word elder just generically, but those words are interchangeable, pastor, shepherd, overseer. Let me show it to you. In Acts 20, 28, he tells the elders, so he's talking to the elders, the presbyteros, that God has made them overseers, uh, episkopos, thus equating the terms overseer and, and presbyteros. In verse 27, Paul goes on to tell the elders that they are to poimain, they are to shepherd God's people. And then in Titus 1, 5, it says, Titus, and it speaks of elders, presbyteros, and overseers, episkopos. These words are used interchangeably. And Paul says that the person holding the title is expected to teach, which is, of course, the function of the shepherd. So in both those chapters, uh, the, the implication is for all three. And in 1 Peter 5, Peter tells the elders, presbyteros, to poimain, verse 2, the flock of God. And so in those uh, two references, we won't spend much time in there, but Acts 20, 28, Titus 1, 5, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, uh, it is implicit that the governor, the shepherd, and the overseer is, is one person. So um, what about, you say, intercessors or those with specialized ministries? Where do they, they fit? Now listen, intercession is something every single believer should be doing. Uh, should you have an intercessory group? I mean, I, we don't like to label those things. It's a prayer meeting. And if people like to stay there a lot and they want to call themselves intercessors, well, I'm happy for that, but we're not going to give them a title or position to complicate this structure. It's elders and deacons and all the saints serving God. That's the way it works. What about guys who exorcise demons? The exorcist, the ghostbuster, 
Well, all of us are commanded to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to preach the gospel. And so there are special gifts. You'll read about them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and um, where administration and leadership comes into play. But you can have elders that are specifically gifted at administration and others specifically gifted at preaching. In fact, Paul says that those whose responsibility is to preach have a special place, but they're not, in terms of they need special honor, but they're not promoted above others. They're still elders. So essentially, and this is what we want to get to, the word deacon, diakonos, means servant. It's translated into English as minister. So if you've got the elders whose job it is to look ahead, to shepherd, to govern, to discipline, and the other group of people are these deacons who are literally translated as servants, as ministers. How do these two work together? We'll have a look at deacons a little bit later, but just in summary, do you know who the only deacon mentioned by name is in the Bible? You'll read about her in Romans chapter 12. It's Phoebe. And so Phoebe is described as a benefactor and a messenger, someone who's carrying the word. Let me just make sure I've got my reference right there. Um, uh, sorry, Romans 16. Let me read it. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church at Centria. And so um, obviously there were many deacons. You can read about their um, qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But these deacons, these servants, many people think that the seven that were appointed in Acts chapter 6 fill the office of a deacon. What are they doing? They're serving, they're standing alongside the elders, but there is a clear distinction because deacons don't have this overseeing governmental component to their ministry. It doesn't mean that some deacons aren't good at governing in their sphere of influence, but in the leadership of a local church, the dividing line between the role of a deacon and an elder, we would say, is governance. And we would define governance with these four um, components. Setting of doctrine, discipline, direction, and handling of finances. Those are highly governmental. It doesn't mean deacons can't have some involvement in that. But the role of elders, as distinct from deacons, is that's how we oversee, govern, and uh, protect the church as it's going on and what God has called it to do. I'm racing through this. Are you all still with me? Because I'm, I'm racing to a, a particular point. Now, um, so I'd like to take, we're looking at the role of an elder now. I'd like to take the issue of discipline. So we're going to look at the, the issue of discipline, the issue of doctrine. I won't go into that too much because I know that's being handled in another session. Uh, of looking at vision, envisioning people, and the handling of finances. We're going to deal with that. And, and as we go through it, I'm going to try and include the role that a deacon would play as the elders lead in those functions. So let's have a look at discipline for, for, for starters. So that's a bit of a swear word in modern day church. But you know that a family unit at home that has got no discipline in it, that children are going to become delinquent. 
where there is government, there's peace. Of his government and peace, there is no end. And when there is no discipline, now discipline can be heavy-handed. When Paul writes to fathers, he says, don't exasperate your children, don't be too heavy-handed, because too heavy-handed leadership, too heavy pruning is gonna kill your church. But in the same breath, no discipline at all, or you know, weak discipline is gonna cause it to go um, haywire. So, so how do we discipline? Well, let me read a governing scripture and we'll talk about it. 1 Corinthians chapter five says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, not at all meaning people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now some quarters in the church prefer to ignore the scripture and pretend it doesn't exist at all. And others have used it to, to really beat up various portions of the church. So as an elder, we've got to look at that text and we've got to say, okay, now, if we leave that up to Tom, Dick and Harry to do, it's like the older brother disciplining the children in the house. That's not appropriate. You know, if, if a 15-year-old starts disciplining a nine-year-old, we call that bullying. But if a dad does it, and he does it wisely, it's healthy for the household. So, so you know, w- w- what does this mean? Uh, I'm, I'm going through a series on Romans at the moment. You all know what's in Romans 1, 18 through to 32, don't you? Deals with the whole homosexuality thing. Now, when we preach uh, through series, we don't skip out, you know, awkward sections like that. And so we were opening a site in Somerset on the day our church was going through and they gave up natural relations with other women and were inflamed with lusts with women, that, that text. And the owners of the wedding venue that we were renting, who were attending the meetings, were living like that. Now, how do you handle that? How, how do you handle these issues of immorality and theft and drunkenness? And so, I'll give you a couple of principles and I'll, I'll give you an illustration that I used to teach our elders how to discipline, which has guided us over the last 20 years. So, so firstly, I think there are some issues when it, we talk about discipline, there are some issues that you just kill with neglect. It's like a kid throwing a little bit of a tantrum on the side and you, if you discipline every single time the kid steps his foot out of line, you're gonna exasperate him. So there are some issues, one of the wisdom, the aspects of wisdom that you need to develop as, a, as an elder is when to discipline and when just to, you know, sometimes a kid, if you just ignore it, it doesn't do it again. But there are times if you just ignore it too much, it's an endorsement. 
So some things you've got to kill with neglect. Other things you've got to take out Matthew chapter 18 and you've got to go to him personally and you've got to say to him, listen, there's an issue here. And then there are other things when he is not repentant that you, you've got to pull out 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and say, well, how do we actually apply this text? So let me give you my illustration. And let, let me frame it with this. Sanctification, in other words, someone becoming in his conduct more and more like Christ is a work of the Spirit. We're sanctified by the Spirit. So if we are leaders and we're co-working with the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification, we've got to be Spirit-led while we're seeing people change. Now what we're not looking for is behavioral modification. What we're looking for is heart transformation. Because when a heart is transformed, the behavior changes. You can tell people, thou shalt not do, thou shalt not do, but Paul says in the, in, to the Colossians, that lacks any value in restraining sensual indulgence. We don't want to have a whole lot of rules and say, as governors of the church, we're making these rules. You step out of the lines of these rules, we're going to slap you. That's disciplined by the law. What we're looking for is disciplined by the Spirit. So, where's there a scripture that speaks about that? Well, Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, I'll be getting there in a couple of weeks' time in our series, says this. Now, circumcision, this is circumcision chapter two, I think it's about verse 12. There is, circumcision is no longer circumcision of the body, but it's circumcision of the heart by the spirit. So that's a, that's a strange thing. In other words, you know, the circumcision operation was done by uh, priests and, and, and fathers, uh, of boys to and mark the body. Now Paul's saying that was a sign of the old covenant, but a sign of the new covenant that you have a living vital relationship with God is that the Holy Spirit marks your heart. He cuts your heart. He deals with your heart. It's circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. If we, if we go back to the importance of circumcision in the Old Testament. Remember Moses was coming to set the people free in, from the clutches of Pharaoh. It says in, in Exodus chapter four that he was on his way and he was at a lodging place. So he's coming from Midian, he's going back to Egypt, he's at a lodging place. I picture some palm trees, a bit of an oasis. Moses swinging in his hammock with his camels around him ready to go back. He's anointed He's called of God. He knows God's gonna use him to set his people free. The next verse says, he is at a lodging place on the way and God was about to kill him. Now God's not schizophrenic, God didn't change his mind. But quite clearly there was something that was gonna stop Moses' inheritance. Something gonna stop the work of God in his life and it had to be dealt with. So the next verse says, so Zipporah, Whips out the flint nuts. Now, now, Zipporah was his Midianite wife. She could have only known about circumcision through her husband, Moses, telling her. She whips out the flint knife. She circumcises the boy. I'm sorry for the graphic illustration, ladies, but she slaps the foreskin at Moses' feet. And I couldn't imagine she did it in a kind way. And she says this, you have become a bridegroom of blood 
to me. Now, I don't know how you can spin that in a nice way. Firstly, it wasn't her job to do. Secondly, she's a Midianite. Thirdly, the slapping of the foreskin, saying that he's a blind man, she was hacked off. And then what happens is God lets him go into do what he's got to do. What we see in that text is circumcision is important, man. And if that dealing of God with his people didn't happen, it stopped the inheritance. And I'm telling you, if, if the most loving thing we can do to a, a strong young person coming through or an old kodja who's stepping offline is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and, and work with the Spirit as the Spirit is working on a guy's heart. And so this is the picture I give to our elders. I say that discipline is so important, it's like heart surgery. The Holy Spirit is working on a heart. So I, we are like co-surgeons with the Spirit as the lead surgeon in heart surgery. So every elder that comes through, this is what I say to them. Whenever you go into discipline, picture yourself with a green garb on, with a mask on, or we can picture that easily nowadays, and a hat going into surgery. So this is what I think of when I think of heart surgery. Pardon me if there's any doctors in the house. You can correct my medical knowledge later. Number one, if you don't do it, just as it was critical for Zipporah and the boys and Moses, if you don't do it, he probably is not going to make it. If you botch it up, he probably is not going to make it. It's critical. You don't take discipline lightly. And so you've got to be prepared when you go in. You've got to wash up. So I say to our guys, sometimes you can go in and discipline someone. You can do it in the exact right way. But if there's dirt on your hands, an infection sets in. Jesus calls that hypocrisy. Now you can't be perfect, but as best you can be, you can, have, you can be clean. I know we are clean. We are, we are the righteousness of Christ. But what I'm saying is if you're messing around with pornography and you're gonna go and try and discipline someone who's committed adultery, you might do the right things, say the right things, have the right outcome, but I'm telling you there's still an infection in that heart. It's critical. You'd never do heart surgery without an anesthetic. Put that dude to sleep. For me, anesthetic is like prayer. You've got to prep him, you've got to get him ready. And that's prayer. If you're going to go and deal with some dude who's now ripping off someone else, who's involved in some sort of dodgy business dealing, and you don't go in there with prayer, so his heart is not being prepared, he's not prepared, you're not prepared, that's going to be a dangerous operation. And when you go in to, to cut him open, you've got a scalpel in your hands, not a butter knife or a chisel. What's the sharpest thing that you as an elder can take into someone's heart? The word of God, sharper than a double-edged sword, dividing thoughts and intentions. That's, that's what does it, it's the word. So you don't come into discipline at this church, this is what we do. Or have you heard what Dudley said? I love what Dudley said, but he's not the word of God. Or not what our church policy is. 
know what Marcus says. Or not, this is how I've done it before, so I'm gonna do it to you again now. That's, those are blunt as, or your opinion. Or just use logic, man. What you're doing is wrong. That is as blunt as a butter knife. You go in with a word, and if you don't know what scripture speaks into the situation that you're about to go and correct, don't go into the operation. You're not holding the scalpel in your hand. Scalpel's gotta be in your hand. I tell you something else that a heart surgeon wouldn't do. He would never go into heart surgery alone. Imagine if he blanks out. Imagine if he needs an extra pair of hands. If you're going into a life and death situation, you're taking another elder with you or you're taking a wife with you or you're taking somebody in that room with you. One-on-one discipline of a critical nature is foolish as well as unloving because who knows what's being said between people. But if you've got people with you, now you've got to be careful of that. So let's say you're disciplining a lady. Three blokes going in, one lady, not clever. You going alone with a lady is bordering on sinful. But you, because that's probably a little bit too much. Just stupid, because you're opening up a heart. And so you've got to be wise who you take with you in your team. Secondly, you would never do heart surgery on a public pavement. It's, it's in a place that is confined. It's in a place that's safe. And, and so there are times when you need to discipline publicly. But you've got, when you do that, and they're very, very rare, it's generally when the church has been butchered or the church has been, had heresy washed over it, and you stand up and put your arm on the preacher that's preached heresy or stand side by side with the person who's ranted and raved and very kindly bring the adjustment. So there are times when it needs to be done publicly. And there are times where a church needs to know what's happened to an elder. We'll get there in a moment. But generally speaking, 99% of the time, it needs to be a safe place. I tell you something else about heart surgery. You don't do it spontaneously either. You don't go to a doctor. He looks at you and says, oh, my word, surgery needed now. I mean, it might happen. Generally speaking, they schedule you in, even if it's for 24 hours time. And, and, and so give time to pray. Give time to collect your team. Give time to go wait on God. Give time to ask him for wisdom. Give time to find out what the lead surgeon, who is the Holy Spirit, remember circumcision of the heart is done by the Spirit. And you as a Spirit-led leader are like handing the scalpel and working with the Spirit, applying the surgery. So it's not done instantaneously. I'll tell you something else about heart surgery is that you've got to care for that patient afterwards. And you're not redoing the operation every time you see them. Imagine you had heart surgery and now the dude's lying in front of you and you're gonna rip him open every time he comes back for a checkup. Open him up and see what's going on inside there. He's never gonna heal. When you've disciplined somebody and the word of God has come in and there's been a, a good outcome, your care for them afterwards is restoration and wholeness. It's not open him up again and again and again and again and again. And so you could go on. Now, I, I am aware that I'm pushing Romans uh, to very far, bringing in a modern operating theater of the heart. But 
it's been a very useful analogy for our elders. I hope it sticks with you. Because what you don't want to do is go rushing in with a dirty hands, a blunt knife, indiscriminately butchering people. But at the same time, you don't want to leave it. Some things you've got to neglect, but you don't want to leave it because if you do, uh, it's life-threatening. So that's discipline. So I said governance, that elders, the role of an elder, that's discipline. Let's just say one thing. The disciplining of an elder is slightly different to the disciplining of everybody else. Not on terms of the standards, but in terms of the implications. Because as elders, we have basically said to people, come and follow us as we follow Christ. As elders, we stood up there and say, it's not only what I'm preaching, but it's what I'm living that you need to be following. So if I'm preaching one thing and I'm living another thing, people need to be told, stop following that. Hi, my friend. And so let me read a text to you out of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. The devil wants to take out elders. And one of the ways he does it is through criticism, gossip, and divisiveness. So an elder in our church the other day was accused of being drunk. There were a whole bunch of young people and, you know, there were a couple of brown packets there and this elder had had something to drink. And so it was brought to my attention. It was at a site where there's a good team of elders leading, but one of the young guys there was, had been accused of, of drinking. So the first thing I said before, you know, this, this chap was spoken to, I said, okay, so is it, who's accused him? Oh, it's this particular girl. So I said, okay, was she drinking? Yes. So a drinking person says that drinking person has drunk too much. So I said, well, I pulled out the scripture. I said, do not entertain an accusation. I said, don't even bring it to me. And there's, there's two or three credible witnesses that, that can say that this requires discipline. I won't go into the end of that story. It had a happy ending. But the, reason, the, the, the thing is, guys, that the devil wants to take out elders. So don't jump to conclusions when an elder is accused. It's two or three witnesses for a very good reason. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone. That means in public. So that the others might take warning. That's a terrifying scripture for an elder. What's that scripture saying? It's not saying that you've got to go and every single person who does something wrong, you pull them up in front of all people. But it does say that because an elder is in public office, because he's saying, follow my life, if his life goes wayward, publicly, you've basically got to say, stop following this dude. That's basically what that text is saying. After two or three witnesses, after you've applied um, the wisdom that's, that's required. And so in, in different churches, and then also, if, you, if you're gonna do that, so if an elder's gonna say, I've had an affair, I need to step aside, or, you, or you're stepping a guy aside, it's gotta be done redemptively. You've got to do it, but it's got to be done redemptively. And um, so that's quite a scary verse, isn't it? You see, if you are going to be used in judging, which discipline requires an element of judgment, 
that same, that same standard is for you. And even higher, those who, who judge will be, those who teach will be judged more strictly. So let's move on to the setting of doctrine. So I'm not gonna be long here because I think it's gonna be a whole session for you, but 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2, Paul, speaking to young Timothy, says to young Timothy, who's overseeing some churches, Timothy, entrust to reliable men who are able to teach what you have heard me say in the company of witnesses. So that's a model for releasing your preachers. Find a reliable guy or girl. Find a reliable, what, what does that mean? That they're not hypocrites, that they live what they teach. That they reflect your values, that when you wield them up there, they're reliable. You can actually say that represents us. Find a reliable dude. But it's not just good enough to be reliable. He's got to have some ability, otherwise he's going to put everybody to sleep. So he's got to be reliable and he's got to be able to teach. But you don't just leave him there with reliability and ability. What you have heard me say in the company of witnesses, what's that mean? That means, Timothy, doctrine, the setting of doctrine is a vital component of your governance, of your leadership. Now, when you deal with it later, you'll go into that in much more detail. I'm just pulling it out to you. That is a vital role of elders. And it's your responsibility. If heresy comes from your pulpit, it's your responsibility. And, and I believe, let's just throw in the role of a deacon here and the role of a lead elder. We're talking mainly about elders. The role of a deacon, we're not saying that every deacon's got to believe exactly what every elder believes. But when he preaches... When a deacon preaches, he's got to understand what the doctrine that has been set in that house is. And he lives it out and he preaches it out. Why do I say he doesn't have to believe everything that the elders in that church believe? Because I think scripture makes it very clear that there's different categories of doctrine. Jude speaks about contend for the faith that was once and all entrusted to the saints. Justification by faith, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of scripture, all scriptures God breathed, useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking. There are some fundamentals that our ancestors died for and that doesn't change and you contend for that. But then there are also things called disputable matters. Do dogs go to heaven? I couldn't care. I couldn't care if you believe that either. I've got really nice dogs, but I don't want to spend eternity with them. Should Paul includes in that category of disputable matters, he includes drink, actually. He includes food sacrifice to idols, actually. You can read it, Romans 14. Disputable matters, don't, don't fight about that stuff. It shouldn't mean if somebody, you know, is a vegetarian and somebody's a vegan and somebody doesn't eat, he's only a carnivore. Or somebody you know, drinks moderately or someone is an absolute teetotaler, it shouldn't mean you can't be in the same church. Paul puts it into the category of disputable matter. But then there is a category as a preacher, as a doctrine setter, that you need to be aware of. And I call those matters of honor. So in other words, I'm happy if you were on my preaching team, I'm happy that you believe something different to me, but I don't want you to preach that. So for example, one of our elders really believed in anointing things with oil. Things, I'm not talking about people. House cleansings, buy his motor car, anoint it, what, what. And I said to him, he's a great lead elder now and he leads a church and I'm pretty sure he's greasing all the wheels of all those people that are in his church. But I said to him, I don't see donkeys being anointed, 
I don't see chariots being anointed, and I don't see in the New Testament houses being anointed. But I'm quite happy if God's given you the faith to anoint those things in your life. I just don't want you to preach them. Imagine, our elders will be sitting at Ford Armstrong and at Toyota. They'll be there all day anointing oil. We're not going to do that. So honor the church and don't even imply that we have to come and do this sort of stuff. And so when you set doctrine, I think you've got to understand this. There are some things you don't budge on. There are some things that are disputable matters and people can have fun about them. I think the vaccine is in there. But for your house, I can't put that on your house. You're an elder, you're setting doctrine. You're setting doctrine. And you've got to decide what's a disputable matter where you're not going to fight about, what's a matter of honor. In other words, I'm happy for people to believe different things, but I don't want it preached. And what we contend for. In other words, if you don't believe this, you shouldn't be with us. If you can look at doctrine in those three categories, you'll elder well, you'll govern well in terms of setting doctrine. What about vision? Setting a vision. Now, obviously, you know, the vision of the church has been given by Jesus, the great commission. You go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We know that. And we know how that's to be done. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And the second greatest commandment is love each other. So as a general rule, the church knows its mission and it knows how it should be going about doing it. But God's gonna give you specific ways to navigate and we call that vision. A new season, a new thing. And so this year when I got all our leaders together at our leadership summit at the beginning of the year, I distilled it into three elements. Number one, it's harvest time now. As we come out of lockdown more than ever before, it's harvest time. So we put our foot on the accelerator with that. It's time to pioneer. Shake off the boxes, shake off the masks. It's time to go for it. Plant, lead, expand, go, stand up and lead. And number three, our small groups. So I've distilled the Great Commission, distilled 49 years of history in our local church and said for the next 12 months, those are the markers we're going to be running at. It's helpful. Now, when you impart vision, when you impart vision, some people do it quite naturally. I was with a team of elders last night, and I was watching the lead guy. I know him really well. I've known him since he got saved. And he's been saved over 20 years. But he can't help himself. He's like an instinctive motivator. It's like, it just comes out of him. So, you know, even if he's like encouraging you to have a brownie, you're so compelled to have the brownie. You know, some people are like that. And, and then other guys are just like, flip, I don't know what to say. How many lead elders tell me that? I'm just like, how on earth do you get people to move from here to there? I can preach them the doctrine. I can, you know, raise up leaders. But to motivate people to do something, I just can't do. So let me give you two useful things that I try and encourage our guys with on our team that struggle with that. So firstly, when you're trying to move a room, you've got to realize that not everybody in that room is the same. And so where did I come to these conclusions? Well, I watched Jesus, the way Jesus moves people. Why did Jesus tell parables? Why did he tell stories? Once there was a man, he had two boys, and the one said, Give me my inheritance. In fact, it's almost like he said, I wish you were dead. And he went away and he squandered as well. Why does Jesus, you like ripped into that thing. It's like, and then the dad comes running out and the beard's flapping and you can smell him and you can, he's hugging his boy and 
I mean, why does he tell that story? Because I'm telling you what, I reckon there's a huge portion of people who are heart people. They need the story. They need to know the family's okay. They feel it here. Now, it's not that they're not spiritual. It's not that they haven't got a brain, but they're motivated here. If you motivate people to do something and you don't tell a parable, you don't tell a story, you don't reach to the heart, you don't say this is good for the family, guess what? You're gonna leave like a third of your crowd behind. Then there are other people that do have a heart, but they're not motivated that way. They're motivated spiritually. They wanna know, the prophets prophesied it, it's written in scripture, the Holy Spirit whispered it, and the angels are coming. Now, if you don't bring out scripture, show that God spoke to you, you tell the stories and you use the brain, but you don't lean into the word, you're gonna leave all those people behind. And then there are other people who are spiritual and they do have a heart, but they're motivated here, they're strategic. And, and so Jesus often referenced logic and the intellect. So strategically, if you're gonna do that, so we, I was talking to this eldership team last night about a financial matter with a building. When they motivate their people to go toward this building, the dudes who have processed and motivated intellectually need to know you've thought about it, you've covered the bases, you're not gonna be put in jail because of this, no one's gonna steal the money, it's carefully thought through. If you leave that out and you just tell the stories and say God's with us, you're gonna leave a whole crowd behind. If you wanna motivate your people to join you, if you wanna lead people, if you wanna take them into the future, you're gonna take the thinkers, you're gonna take the feelers, and you're gonna take the spiritual. So I put those lenses on every time I get ready with an announcement or try and visit. In fact, I do it instinctively, but I'm thinking it through it like a logical dude, like a feeling dude and like a super prophet. Here's another quick thing about inspiring people to do something in terms of vision. So children's ministry is the least popular ministry to sign up for. Agreed? Even school teachers avoid it, saying I have kids all week. So to have a good children's ministry means somebody has done this. Somebody has motivated. Somebody's gone to the word and said, actually, you know what Jesus did? Jesus said, you, you kick one of these out. You know, I'm gonna, you cause one of these to stumble, I'm gonna put a millstone around your neck and you better be just thrown into the sea. Jesus said that. You welcome one of these, you welcome me. Jesus said that. So someone's done that. Someone's also told a story about the kids who really, really just love it and say to mom, come on, go to church, mom, and they come to church. And then someone has been able to show that this is logically a good thing. So my daughter, Katie, is 24 years old, and she was moved, she's on staff with us, and she was moved across to our original site, that's like the Bedford View site of our church, and the guy leading it comes from Cornerstone. Is a brilliant dude, but needs help administratively. Let's just put it that way. So he's incredible on the stage. But the reason they pulled my daughter in there was because they needed this help. So the site pastor, the, the, the lead guy at that particular site went to my daughter and said, I'm gonna give you the microphone in front of the people and you need to recruit 50 children's church workers for Keith. And so she comes to me that evening and she says, Dad, how am I gonna do this? 
How am I going to do this? So, so I said, well, what are you planning to do? So she told me. So I said, this is what you need to do. You've got to take a piece of paper and you've got to write down why people don't do children's ministry. Why don't they do it? Because they want to be in the main service. Why don't they do it? Be, because they don't think it's important. Why don't they do it? They're terrified of kids. They hate vomit. They list them. List it. Because when you're getting these 50 volunteers, you're not just getting someone who's going to sit there and wipe a nose of a little three-year-old. You need sound guys. You need light guys. You need preachers. You need welcomers at the door. You need administrators. You need small group leaders. You need dancers. You need worship leaders. You need a whole ambit of people. So you're not just looking for a monodimensional person. So write down the list of reasons why people don't do it. And then don't put the thing up there and say, I know you guys are worried about vomit. Don't, don't say that. Just undo every single objection as you speak to them. So the do sitting there with the excuse. Yes, you speak about everybody else because I've got this valid excuse. Whoops. <laughs> excuse is undone. You say, Grant, that's a little bit of trickery. No, it's just vision. Leadership is taking people where they wouldn't ordinarily go by themselves. And elders have the responsibility to do that. So thank the Lord we do it in team, hey. Because I, I saw, I've just been at a church up in, um, in Pumalanga. They've got a great eldership team. But I've noticed every time I go there, they give the announcements to this like energized little energizer bunny. He hops up. Now the preacher is really a stately man. But this little energizer bunny hops up. And all of a sudden, everybody's awake. He has naturally inspires people. And so because they do it in team, they pick the dude who can move people to move the people. We set doctrine. We discipline. We give direction. And then uh, we handle finance. I want to get to this woman thing quickly, so I'm going to go through finance very, very quickly. Are they dealing with it elsewhere, finances? Not. I've seen finances undo church plants almost as much as any other thing. Start the way you want to finish. Just because there's only six people doesn't mean your wife collects the money in a purse and chucks it into her handbag and checks it in at the ATM when you go home. Start with integrity of practice. And so decision-making the legal setup, we can maybe answer questions on this regard later. I don't want to spend too much time talking about it, but finances are extremely important. You've got to be above reproach. You've got to be good stewards. You've got to be generous. You've got to preach boldly, but you've got to not compel people or manipulate them. That's quite a tightrope to walk. I'm going to say to you, you need, you need to ask God for victory in your own life with finances and you will lead people into victory. In addition to all of that, you've got to think through various things like your salary. Who sets your salary? We suggest in this tribe that you bring in a couple of team guys to come in. They set your salary. They put it in writing. You file it in a file because if ever an accusation comes up against you, you didn't set your salary. An elder that you pay didn't set your salary. An outsider that you're accountable set your salary. Two or three of them did, and you took the lowest or the average, not the highest, just to be above reproach. You file that and you keep it away. 
big spending decisions, you should be accountable to them. Debt. You should not go into debt without serious consultation with people that you're accountable to. Why? Because I'm telling you what, when big people start to arrive into your church, when I'm, I mean big people, I mean financially big people, and they see lack of accountability, lack of integrity, foolishness in spending, they were, I went to church the other day where one of their main leaders was tithing to the SPCA. I'm not kidding. I mean, that, that boggles the brain. Looking after Muffy and Snowy is a better investment of my money than what these elders governing God's people would do. That's what he's saying. Where did he come to that conclusion? Watching how they were handling it. Anyway, there's huge minefields there. And what I'm saying to you, this is how we can summarize this. Get apostolic team guys who are comfortable to talk in that. Now, not, not everyone on the apostolic team will want to talk into that in your life. So find people on the apostolic team who are comfortable talking about those issues into your life and get the same people regularly in. Shall I tell you, I've also seen people that ask this guy, that guy, that, until they find the dude who really does what they want to do. Even get people in that mix who disagree with some of the things that you do. Safest place to be. Anyway, why did that get suddenly very quiet? I hope I don't butcher this and I might pick it up in the other session because we're ending at 10.30, are we? Marcus? Mm. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. So, a huge talking point today is women in ministry. Now, I'm pretty certain that after my 25 years on the team that I'm going to reflect the team accurately, but there might be some nuances that Marcus and other guys, they put a slightly different spin on it, but I'm, I'm hopefully help you to give some sane navigation through this. Stan and my, myself, who's going to be speaking a little bit later, when we did our post-grad theology studies, we studied under an extremely liberal dude who tested our convictions on these things. That's right, Esther. My assignments used to come back with red lines through it most of the time. But he still gave us good marks because it was back biblically. So, but I think you, you need a conviction on this. And I'll tell you why you need a conviction on this. You can't just say, oh, I'm part of a tribe that says that. You need a conviction because this is going to be a massive axis that of, of, of rub and friction with the outside world and you've got to I believe in this instance be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves you've got to hold to your conviction and be gracious at the same time and so I will start with my only controversial statement today is that there are two polarizing tags that are given to the spectrum of this thought in church circles the one is egalitarianism now that word Egalité came out of the French Revolution and it means absolute equality on every level. Equal in essence, ontologically, in other words, in your person, in function, in every way. And so feminism is built on egalitarian principles. 
That's on the one extreme. And on the other extreme, you have hyper-complementarianism, and in its finest extreme, women have head coverings, don't say a single word in church, and uh, basically are, are at home. Now, in the spectrum, there are different landing points. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that I think, this is the only controversial thing I'm going to say today, that those tags are unhelpful. Because if I say egalitarian, there's a whole range of egalitarians. If I say complementarian, there's a whole range of complementarians. And if you stamp on your forehead, I am complementarian, some people think that your women have head coverings and that they never, they never, you know, they move from church to back row of the, back row of the church to your house and back, and, and that's the category you're in. I'm not saying you can't use them. I'm just saying, for me, I've asked our guys to live their conviction and to stick with biblical language rather than, you know, fly the flags. Because I don't want to draw unnecessary gunfire. Anyway, so I've moved my most controversial thing out of the, the way. Having said that, let me say this to you. Where do I lean? Because I know I'm not going to finish this now and I have to start this in the next session. Uh, just to walk the elephant out of the room, I'm far more here than I am here. But my wife doesn't have a duke on her head and she can take the microphone when the spirit moves her. So, so don't peg me with the dukes, but also don't put me with the feminists. So we're going to try and navigate this. So, so biblically, what do we see? New Testament, women in ministry. Well, there's a whole list of companions that traveled with Paul. Uh, Adronicus and Junius, I think they were a married couple, are listed among the, the most amazing of the apostles. You've got Phoebe, we've already mentioned today, who was a, a deacon, and she looked like she was carrying a letter uh, and, you know, Paul was, was basically uh, saying that you need to listen to her because she's not only a deacon, which means she's been serving, she's been ministering at some level. Deacon, we translate as minister. She's been ministering at some level, but she's also a benefactor. So she's a wealthy chick and she's been funding stuff. She, she's been making decisions on funding of her own resources into the local church. In addition to that, you've got Philip, who had four unmarried daughters. They weren't even married, but they were yeah, with Philip, and they prophesied. Now, I'm sure they didn't just prophesy in the shower. If they were described as prophets in the local church, they were actually speaking to humans. So we see women prophesying. We see women on team with Paul. We see Priscilla and Aquila. Now, it's interesting that Priscilla's name comes up before Aquila. Remember when they met, met Apollos in the marketplace? They said to Apollos, come home to our house, because he was just preaching the baptism of John, and we will teach you, we will teach you the way more accurately. Do you think Priscilla just sat in the kitchen and said nothing? Priscilla and Aquila hosted Apollos, straightened out his doctrine. The woman at the well is met by Jesus under very controversial circumstances. She rushes into the, uh, the, the village there in Samaria and she comes back with the whole village and they convince Jesus to stay there. 
You read this in John chapter 4. They convinced Jesus to stay there for an extra two days. At the end, I think it's verse 42 or 32 or something. uh, This is what the people say. We now no longer believe because of the women's testimony, but we believe because we've seen it ourselves. So in other words, Jesus allowed her to go and act like an evangelist, bring all the people in, share her testimony. It transformed their lives. And they said, our basis of our belief now is no longer in because of her testimony and the transformation that happened in her life, but because we've seen Jesus ourselves. means that woman was doing something. Jesus didn't say, oops, I've saved you. Go home, wash your dishes. Didn't say that. She did something. The church in the New Testament was very different to the secular society in that day and that women were active and that they were involved. And, and so, yeah, Timothy, where did he get his doctrine from? His mom and his grandmother. They weren't silent. They didn't say, oh, you must go find a rabbi to tell you this. And so, I'll, I'll pick this up in the next session this afternoon. Remember, I'm not standing here. I'm standing over here. But you've got to be wise I think you've got to live out your doctrine. You've got to live out your theology. So if you believe in headship within marriage, I don't believe in universal male headship. The tramp under the bridge down here at Boeing Road is not head of Adele. There's the marriage. They, she qualifies him and he qualifies her. And as they minister together, they are a team. But there's headship in that marriage. If you believe that, that there's role clarity, there's, there's ontological equality. In other words, they are co-equal, but there's role clarity. And you don't live it out. You're going to catch some gunfire. I've done enough to provoke you, haven't I? Thanks for the session. That was an intro. I've asked the questions. I haven't given the answer. Thanks for joining us today. Remember to go to ncmi.net for more resources.